thank you there, you know, Leah and the worship team. You, you just may be seated. First of all, I just want to say happy Father's Day to all of our fathers out here. It's a pretty special day when it's Father's Day, I think. It's, uh, um, I mean, first of all, I want to, you know, just, for, I just first of all, would just like to honor my dad. We just buried him two weeks ago. And uh, he lived, he was a godly man. He was a godly man who um, loved following Jesus. And he left a legacy with his three sons that following Jesus is the most important thing to do. He knew that going to church didn't make it. It was being the church. So he was a really good man. And I just want to, I, I just want to have all of the fathers stand up here today because I want to honor you too. So fathers, please, please you know, stand up. I can't think, just, I mean, just everybody stay standing. I can't think of a better place for men to be, for fathers to be, than in you know, God's house right now. So I honor all of you for that, and I'd like to pray for you. So if people that, that are around would just gather around each father standing, and let's, I mean, let's cover them in our prayers, because I think it's a special time that we can honor them. As Father, we are, we are grateful for your presence here. We are grateful for the role of fathers that you have placed in this world. That it, is a, it is after your own heart, and you, Father, draw them to you to give them your heart. So, Father, may each man here that is standing just be blessed in a real, in a real special way. Uh, may they be followers of you. May they be leaders, and may they be high priests in their family to just... Um, intervene and just to be that conduit of your love and grace and mercy into their family. So Father, thank you for them here. Just draw them closer to you and draw their families closer uh, to them so that the, so the family can be a glory to this world. These things we pray, Father, in your son's name. Amen. It's a hard job for fathers, isn't it? The world has really minimized the role of fathers, and I just heard this morning when we were watching the news that 18 million kids are in homes without fathers. Uh, so it's something that uh, that starts catching up to a country uh, eventually. So thank you, men that are here. Uh, it's a um, it's a real honor. Now I, I asked Pastor Mark if I could go until 2 o'clock today. He said, sure. <laughs> he said, everyone's going to leave at 12, but you can go as long as you want. <laughs> no, he didn't really say that. <laughs> but anyhow, um, I want to first start out with a few stats because we're going to be talking about, he's been doing a, a series here in the last few weeks on the high view of God, that we need to raise our view of God because his attributes are worth worshiping. His attributes are worth having a high vision of who he is. So in that, I'm going to talk about Jesus' high view of his church. The, because the actual high view that Jesus has of his church should transform all of us into how we see his church, how we you know, participate in his church, and how his church has a, um, a, a, a real mission in this world. So, uh, but I just want to start out with a few stats here that uh, 
may be indication of the, the weakness of the Western church. Fewer than one in four Americans believe that the Bible is actually the word of God. 26%, and this is all out of a Gallup, 26% believe that the Bible is a book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by, by a man. And here's one that's uh, disturbing. 52% of Americans and nearly a third of, of, of just evangelicals say that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. And it's only 31% of the young people ages 18 to 29 believe, say that they believe in God as described by the, I mean, described in the Bible. Gallup began polling in 1937, and from 1937 to 2000, church attendance has been steady at 70%. In 20 years, so from, I mean, now 22 years, from 2000 to now, church participation is at 47%. What's going on? What's going on with our churches? Have you ever heard the comment that I love Jesus, but I hate the church? I've heard that too often, and I know that must break Jesus' heart. Um, I'd like to talk about this morning about the, the actual high view that Jesus had of his church. I want to um, hit the points of how he prepared his uh, disciples to be the church, and then how the first generation church was actually established in the book of Acts, and then what happened to the second generation church, and then I want to close today with the church in the uh, last days. So just let me pray for us. Father, we are again grateful for, uh, for your Holy Spirit here. We're, we know and we acknowledge that we cannot understand your word without the counsel of your spirit. So, Father, I ask that your spirit would just stir each heart, would give us a true hunger to want to know the truth. And, Father, just um, break our heart with the things that break yours. Help us to see and lift up the church as you do because your view of the church is, is awesome. It's high. So, Father, guide us, guide, guide, guide the words that we speak and the passages that we read today, and may they truly glorify you. And these things I pray in your son's name. Amen. I can't see the screen. Is the screen? No. I just want to make sure that, okay, good. Um, I can't see what's, what's on the front screen. Um, there are three institutions that, are, that have been ordered by, by God that are called out in Scripture. And those institutions are the government, you know, uh, it, uh, the family, and the church. In the government, God has given mandates about how the pe people should you know, respond to the government, but he's also given um, rules for how the government acts too. They, they are supposed to be protectors of the righteous and uh, punishers of the wicked. 
He's also instituted the family, right? So the family structure and marriage. That's, that is another institution by, you know, by God. And he's given us instructions as to what that's to look like and how that interacts. And then he's given us the church. And the church is an institution. It's the only institution that we see a high sacrifice of by, you know, by Jesus. Matter of fact, the family and marriage is a blueprint of the relationship between the bride, which is the church, and the bridegroom, which is uh, Jesus. So right off of the bat, just with that alone, we know that the church has a very high place, a very lofted place that Scripture puts it in, that Jesus puts it in just by the fact of um, how he sacrificed for it. Um, okay. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't see where the, do up here, there we go. So our launching point for scripture today is Ephesians 5.27. And again, this is a verse that right off the bat, we, we have seen this verse used so many times for a marriage, as a instructions for the, for the for, I, mean, I mean, just like the husband in this case. But if we look at this, this gives us a good indication of how Jesus saw his church. So it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her as having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or just any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So we see that when the creator of the world, Jesus, who created all things by him and for himself, sacrificed himself. He gave himself up for the church. So that right there puts the church at the same way that Jesus sees it, because it, he was sacrificed himself for. He says that he sanctifies her, which just means setting her apart. He cleanses her by the washing of water with the word. You know, John, or Jesus said in John 17, he says, when he was praying the uh, priestly prayer just before he was um, going to be crucified, he's, he said, uh, Father, sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. So God's word is truth, and his word cleanses. He uses his word to cleanse the church. He presents the church to himself in splendor and in glory. And he is the final product of the church is to be presented to him with to be holy without spot or a blemish. So from this verse, who is doing all of the doing here? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is doing all of the doing. There's, man's not doing anything for his church. It's Jesus is doing doing all of the uh, building here. So, since he has such a high role for his church, he has to prepare his uh, disciples for what the church is going to look like because up until this point, there wasn't a church. There was a synagogue, you know, but there wasn't a church, you know. So the first, the first time that um, Jesus even uses the word uh, church is actually in, 
uh, Matthew 16. But first of all, you know, Jesus had, what, a three-year public ministry? So he had three years that he was on the earth, right? So his ministry started when he was baptized by uh, John, right? So as, after that baptism, he started to you know, just assemble the uh, disciples. So he took three years to uh, prepare the uh, disciples to tell them who he was, to teach them about his father, to teach them about the uh, kingdom. And I find it interesting that it wasn't until two and a half years that he asked for a, um, a, a proclamation from them of who he was. And I'm struck by the fact that so often when we're sharing the gospel to people, we give them our five-minute spiel about who Jesus, then we press them for a, in a decision. Jesus took two and a half years just to train the uh, disciples and teach them who he was. So we should, I think, think about when, we're, when God puts somebody on our heart, it needs to be a long-time relationship. Take the time to teach them as to who Jesus is because right now, if these uh, numbers are right, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know anything about him, and we're talking church language to get them to pray a prayer, and Jesus didn't do it that way. But he asked his disciples, who did they think he was? So, um, and it will go to Matthew 16, 15 through 18, he says, so he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the uh, living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that's, that's some pretty heady stuff that Peter heard, isn't it? And I think he probably heard power, rule, and control from that statement because it wasn't but just a, a few more verses down uh, in verse 21 through about 23, he says, from that time forward, he said, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to uh, Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on that third day be raised. Now, that, I just want to stop right there for a second because this is a prophetic statement. You know, we always talk about prophecy being sometimes far off and, you know, a, thir a third of our scripture is prophecy. But even a statement like this is prophecy because Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die, but don't fear, and three days later, I'm going to come back, you know, come back to life. That's a, a prophetic statement. So Peter, he didn't like that. So Peter took him aside. So now here, this power, rule, and control. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, we know Jesus was actually talking to Satan here because Peter is not Satan. But then he says, you are a hindrance to me. And this is important. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of, um, of a man. So this is something that 
This is probably a question that we should ask ourselves all the time. Are we doing this? Um, is uh, my mind set on things of God or is my mind set on things of man when I'm trying to figure out if I'm doing what God would, would just have me to do? So anyhow, from this point on, Jesus is now preparing them to, uh, for the fact that he's going to die uh, and that, he's gonna, that it is necessary for him to die. And the uh, disciples, they didn't like hearing that, did they? I mean, did they? They didn't want Jesus to live. They just now got to the point that they believed that he is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now Jesus is saying, but I'm going away, and you can't come with me. <laughs> you know, so he was now preparing them for something that they didn't want to hear. But now, I mean, this is how Jesus kept, you know, keeps moving, uh, moving forward. He says that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works will these, I mean, will he do because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is now telling them, you're going to do greater works than me. Now, they just believe that he's the uh, son of man now, and he's the son of God. He's, they're going to do greater works than uh, Jesus? That's a hard one to disbelieve. But then again, he then tells them, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to you, your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he is telling them all the reasons why they shouldn't be afraid. This is part of the, of the plan. This is the, the kingdom is going to come um, only if this plan is, is, is uh, followed. So now at Jesus' death, what happens to all of them? They're all afraid, and they scattered, didn't they? The, uh, the only apostle, the only uh, disciple at that time that stayed around was John, because John was with you know, Jesus' mother at, at the uh, cross. But you know, when he comes back to life in three days, he appears to the frightened uh, disciples, and he encourages them, doesn't he? He tells them that um, he's alive just as he promised. So the, the you know, prophecy, even though it's a short-time prophecy, was true, and the kingdom plan is still in place. So then at that point, they then you know, finally did remember that Jesus did say that, but they were still afraid. They were still you know, thinking that Jesus was now going to come and bring his kingdom. You know? So it says in 2 in Acts 1, 3. Oh, wait, where am I? I'm too far. I'm sorry. Acts 1, 3. It says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for like 40 days, and what? Speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So that was what Jesus was doing, was still telling them about the kingdom, kingdom of God. Because it sounds like the church that he said he was going to build was about God's kingdom. So what... What did Jesus, when he was alive, what did he teach about the kingdom of God? Real, you know, real quick. In his prayer, when he said, pray like this, he said, you know, your will, I mean, you know, Father, um, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's saying, 
God's kingdom is still in heaven, not on earth, but we are praying for it to come to earth, and that the kingdom on earth would be like it is in heaven, God's will, God's will be done. But for now, the kingdom is not on earth. But also Jesus taught that the kingdom was of great value, didn't he? He, he used parables like a buried, the kingdom of God is like a buried treasure, and a man finds it in the field, reburies it, goes and sells all that he has to buy the field to get that buried, to get that buried treasure. So that's the value that Jesus was placing on the, the, the kingdom of God. There's no sacrifice too great for the kingdom of God. He even said that, and it's also like a great pearl that a merchant was you know, looking for. And after he found it, he sold all of his possessions too to buy this great pearl. Also, Jesus said in Luke 17, he said, the kingdom of God is within us, basically, didn't he? He said, or is very near to us. And he was talking about himself as the kingdom. But, but I mean, we know through the, the teachings of Paul that Christ is in us. So with Christ in us, the kingdom is in us. So that is the kingdom on earth right now is in believers in, in the church. So that's where the kingdom is at this time. So Jesus, in Matthew 28, he's now giving them like the mandate for the church now, because this is what the, the church is you know, supposed to be doing. He says, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of uh, just like all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. The saying is, is that we the church are supposed to be on, on just like offense against evil. We can go and raid hell and raid evil in the, in the name of Jesus for the souls that Jesus wants to save. So we should not be in a circle of wagons defensive mode. We should not be church is in our four walls. Church is on, is on the move. It's on the offense. And we have nothing to fear because even the gates of hell will not prevail against the offense of the church. He says, um, he taught them that the Holy Spirit fills and empowers to do greater works than uh, Jesus did. So, so just again, since Jesus is building this church, it's not man, the Holy Spirit fills us to do this high and lofty work of building his church. The church is to go into all the world to make uh, disciples and followers of Jesus. And I truly think that sometimes um, we, we actually miss that because we think we're sending missionaries. You know, we discovered right now Mara is preparing to go into the mission field in a, a, a vocational ministry. And that is our duty as a church. But you know what? There is no vocational ministry separated out for the church. There are people that go into, and that's their vocation, but the rest of the church... You know, we're not left off the hook. We're not, you know, we have to go into the world all the same. So when, uh, when we're talking about this, this is not a mandate for our pastors and our missionaries. It's the whole church is to go into the world. 
to make, to make disciples. Jesus um, is saying that the church is supposed to be speaking about the kingdom of God, both current and coming kingdom of God. And we are not to stop doing this until the end of the age. So this is something that we have been uh, encouraged to go through uh, without, without pause. So now that we've, Jesus has set the foundation for what the church is supposed to look like, now we're going to look at what did the first generation church uh, look like. So the, um, the book of Acts is a, if you've never studied the book of Acts or read it, uh, fully it is a great book just to read just just for the the storyline of how the early church was it was actually founded and how <clears throat> man was called to do things but still jesus built his church all all through acts um it's funny that um you know god had given them the instruction that is supposed to go you know jerusalem you know, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to all parts of the world. And at this point, early on in the church, the church was in a Jerusalem. So it wasn't even in, it didn't go anywhere until what happened. What, what, what was the thing that happened that started sending the church out? What, yeah, was the persecution, was the actual stoning of a Stephen. So when Stephen was stoned, then all of a sudden, the Christians fled. In fear, you know, but they still fled. But what, for what Satan meant, for this evil, God means for good. Just, you know, I mean, just like Joseph said to his brothers. So the Holy Spirit used that to spread his church. So the church, just like Antioch, uh, which is a prominent church all, all through Acts, uh, was founded by Peter at this time. Uh, and it was a foundational church. It was a church that was sending um, missionaries and you know, supported Paul's, Paul's missionary journeys. And they planted churches in the region. Uh, so we see now after the church is founded, what do we see? Oh, and one of the stories in Acts is about when Peter and John healed a, a, a lame beggar, right? He just healed a lame beggar that everyone knew that he was lame since, uh, since birth. So when they were all astonished, uh, Peter glorifies Jesus as, as the healer, and many uh, repented. You know, so then uh, the religious leaders uh, summoned Peter and John before the council, and they demanded what power or what name did they act in. And being filled with the Spirit, they answered boldly that it was the name of Jesus, Again, 